Good evening, welcome to Internet, fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt. Hello. And our producer, Adrian Walton. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Today we'll be chatting about dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. At long last, I thought the Earth... Are we going to talk about some dinosaurs today? I think so. My okay. fingers are crossed. Cool. I've been planning on putting dinosaurs in every episode and have fought the urge, but today I'm letting loose. Cool. We're also talking about a James Bond-esque lab on a glove. Martian Atmospheres, and we'll be talking with a real-life paleontologist, Dr. Steve Salisbury from the University of Queensland. He's found some cool stuff. What are your thoughts on dinosaurs? Don't hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Never met one. (laughs) Well, on that note, let's kick off the show with some dino news. Researchers have found a new tyrannosaur named... Interonauts really could be a dinosaur, couldn't it? Oh no, here come the Interonauts. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hopefully an informative... We'll get a spin-off kids show. A nerd dinosaur. Yeah, it's got glasses, glasses and... Tiny arms <laughs> it's not very good at sports. Sorry, I interrupted. Researchers have found a new tyrannosaur named Despletosaurus horneri that has a brilliantly preserved skull that answers a lot of dino questions out there about their lips, their type of skin, and even how they made love. Hey? Wow. All this from like a skull? A... Yeah. Well, I can tell you exactly how it answered those questions. Hey, please, go go right ahead. So there is a family of dinosaurs that we all know called the Tyrannosaurids, getting some funny looks from Adrian. And they so got, the Tyrannosaurus rex? That is a Tyrannosaurid. It's a oh, family. Okay. Um, so there are different ones? Yeah, yeah, there are heaps. Oh, I wow. think uh, a few dozen species. What do they have in common? T- um, Tiny An arms. ancestor. Tiny arms, yeah, pretty much. So they all came from smaller ones. So Smaller arms. <laughs> yeah. they, they sprouted a head <laughs> Lucky this isn't a visual medium Because any Tyrannosaurs listening right now Would just tune right out Because I'm teasing them Tyrannosaurs, Tyrannoshields uh, One of the smaller ones Name was Dilong Which is like a Chinese word for uh, earth dragon And that was kind of like an ancestral Tyrannosaur It was two metres long Probably could have chased and eaten us But um, that eventually gave rise to larger and larger ones. So some of their defining features, which you'll recognize, are large heads, Mm -hmm. lots of teeth, Mm -hmm. the tiny arms, and just two Mm. little digits. Oh, just really? Yeah. I don't know what happened to the other ones. They They can't uh, open jars. They're product. I don't They can't fold bed sheets? (laughs) Well, they got their heads, and as we'll get into, very sensitive snouts, so I'm sure they could have... uh, at least somewhat made the bed. Um, they got long legs for fast running, mm-hmm. and at least one species, Eutyrannus, was preserved with feathers all over it. Wow. On its neck, arms, 20 centimetre long feathers, and this was a big uh, mother, nine metres long, and it was completely feathered. It so lived... does that mean feathers, does feathers mean flight? No. So it what's was nine of... metres. Uh, it lived up in the Arctic. Yeah, so well, it, it could was... have had 40 metre wings, couldn't it? It could have. Um, no, it was just very cold up there, and the feathers were for insulation and Body regulation tip. Ah. Uh, DeLong, like one of those early ones, the smaller two-meter-long ones, that was also feathered. So um, it's up for I know, speculation whether T-Rex itself had feathers. What kind uh, of color feathers are we talking here? They don't know. It's often depicted as white feathers because it's in the Arctic, probably mm. snowing, good camouflage as well because they are predators. Mm. But um, no, that's not known. Though they do know the colors of other feathers for dinosaurs. Um, what's that one that was found recently? Anchionis. Uh, it's like uh, black and white, like a, an Australian magpie. And it had a red crest. like a Wow. Yes, yeah, so they literally know the colours of this dinosaur. But you Tyrannus, no, they don't. So that's the diversity of the Tyrannosaurids, which um, yeah, is a family that encompasses quite a few. So they found a new member in there. 
Um, its name is Despletosaurus Horneri, which is named after Jack Horner. He was a paleontologist that actually, um, in Lost World, Alan, you know, Sam Neill's character was based off Jack Horner, mm. um, a real-life guy, and he was the, uh, the informer on uh, Jurassic Park, helped All right. you know, just give them information about what they should look like. But anyway, so this dinosaur has been named after him. He also did a lot of work in the area where they found Despletosaurus. I went to a dinosaur talk one time by um, an Australian Did many dinosaurs show up? <laughs> <laughs> Who did the talking? Um, I believe his name was John Long, and uh, I asked him how T Rex had sex because they're on two legs and uh, just the, they got a big tail, so the mounting procedure would have been quite ungainly. And he said they don't know, uh, so I'll keep an eye out for that. Okay, oh, thanks. Cool. Let us know. And hey, if there are, are any Tyrant Swords listening, and you can inform us of how you procreate. <laughs> Give us a buzz. Do we have a number? One eight hundred Interonauts. That's what our number dot call. Oh, you can social. Social at Cyro. Yeah, social media at csiro.au. Tell us how T Rex bonked. Now, Sophie's going to tell us a piece of CSIRO news about a new lab on a glove. Lab on a glove. Yeah, as if labs weren't cool enough, uh, someone decided to invent a lab on a glove in collaboration with the University of California, San Diego. Is this like uh, ShamWow? (laughs) Yeah. Will it blend? Will it glove? (laughs) Magic glove. (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's a portable wearable device. Um, Like a glove? Like a glove. (laughs) It's over the hand. Yeah, does it fit? (laughs) <laughs> like a glove? <laughs> it acts as a wearable chemical sensor, which is really cool. Um, it's be- been designed to identify specifically organophosphate compounds, which are known as OPs. Does anyone know what OPs are? Overproof. I don't know. Um, Tell us about them. Well, they're mostly present on surfaces. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We better invent some gloves. There are things on surfaces. All the OPs. No, uh... <laughs> Well, there are a group of toxic chemicals. They can be found in nerve gases and even some pesticides. Um, an example nerve gas is sarin, um, and that's been used as a chemical weapon before. Mm-hmm. Um, it works by attacking the nervous systems of humans and some insects too. Um, so it, that's why they can be found in pesticides. It stops some sort of uh, uh, communication going on with the muscles, so the muscles start spasming. And you die of asphyxiation because your lungs don't, don't work breathe, properly. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Um, so hopefully the glove will help in identifying these sort of agents. So how does the glove? Measure. So how does the glove identify the agents? Let me break it down for you. Please do. Okay. You collect your sample. Step one. You activate the scan of the sample on your glove in a very slick movement. Wouldn't step one be putting the glove on? <laughs> step one. Put the glove on. You've clearly done your first aid course. Remember how they trip you up? No. You ha- you usually have to fill in the test answers, and you fail if you don't say you put the glove on first when entering wow. a scene. Wow! It's yeah, I've been hurt before. Um, so <laughs> uh, the glove activates. How do you detect the sample again? What do well, you mean detect that. the sample? That's step two. Okay, sorry. <laughs> step the glove one. does that. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Step right. one, glove on. <laughs> Step one, glove on. And these, what are these gloves like? Are they big sort of they're welding pur- gloves? They're like an old glove. So they're like, yeah, okay, surgical gloves. At this stage, they're disposable too. Yeah. 
Um, you collect your sample, you put it on your index finger, mm-hmm. you touch your index finger between your thumb, mm-hmm. with so your thumb. You can you collect the sample with your thumb. It's got a little pad for a collection. Okay. And it's got a sensor on your index, and uh, you press them together. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I said the index finger. It's actually the thumb. So um, I've done this. We've made that pinching motion. Yeah. It has a little carbon pad on it, the thumb, and mm-hmm. so any suspect samples, put it on there, then... The index finger actually has a biosensor. I hope on everyone's it. following along like Jesse and I are right now, <laughs> making our <laughs> <Looks> pinching. <laughs> yeah. That index finger contains an enzyme that mm-hmm. specifically reacts with OP con- compounds. Oh my um, god! I like found sarin. an OP. I'm getting so excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, commences an electrochemical analysis scan. If, unfortunately, I don't have an acronym for that. It's a mouthful. Scan. <laughs> on the back E-scan. of your hand, picturing the hand still. There's a miniature measuring device, very small. Not small enough right now, though, apparently. That is connected to the index finger. How? How, you ask? How, How? is information from my index finger getting, getting to the, the back, back of my, of my hand, hand on an inert rubber glove? <laughs> There's a winding special ink pattern. A winding? Picture. Yeah, so ink is specially layered into the glove. Right. But if you were to do it in a straight line, you move your hand, right? And yep. it would if it would just like It would snap, distort the... Yeah. Stretch, yeah. 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 So it, it's uh, almost cyclical, I believe, serpentine. Um, that connects back of your hand to index finger. That connects the two so that it can analyze the sample using really, really miniature electrical stuff. Circuitry. <laughs> tell, me, tell me, Sophie, do you have one you prepared earlier to show me? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Um, oh. It's top secret, I'd imagine. Um, oh, okay. So, should we be talking about it? Are we going to have men in black suits kicking the well, door? Well, in? initially, yeah, it was a military uh, device. It was going to be used for counterterrorism measures, and they realised that some of the pesticides. So, so these um, OPs work by disrupting your nervous system, mm-hmm. and they work on animals. So, so insects, humans. So that's why it's bad for humans. Bad for insects. Uses an insecticide. So there's sometimes residue on different uh, fruit, fruit and vegetables. Yeah. So they found out you can slap on this glove a farmer. Uh, swipe, swipe your oh, apple, wow. clench it, and you test it on the spot in a few minutes, and it will say you've got residual uh, herbicides on these um, apples. Isn't that clever? Sort it out. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it started great. off uh, anti-terrorism, and now the application's just so so broad. The cool thing is you can zip up these results and send it straight away in real time to your smartphone via Bluetooth. Just for a reminder, this is a glove. So Boom, you get your test results. And we're talking, yeah, we're talking about something that is, yeah, your classic surgical glove where you're washing up. Gloves. Mm-hmm. We're not talking things that are big and bulky and have battery packs. No, it's and no. Yeah. So yeah. So it, what powers it? Surely there must be some. I think electricity involved. I think the power is in the back of the hand, and that's the thing that sends the info to your phone via Bluetooth. So normally, if they go to a crime scene, they want to test for this stuff. They have to take a swab, send it to a laboratory, yeah, wait yeah, a couple yeah, of yeah, days. Yeah. This is completely. Get it to the lab. Yeah. Mm. Get it to my phone. Also, apparently the gloves can withstand um, extreme operating conditions. I'm not entirely sure what that is. Maybe solar wind thrashings. (laughs) Um, Neanderthals. Thrashings. But I assume it can withstand most wear and tear. Um, What's next for the glove, you ask? What's next for the glove? Scientists uh, want to further miniaturize the electronics, uh, possibly at the backhand of the glove. And they're also trying to develop some new sensors and utilize the other fingers on the glove um, so they can screen for other compounds. What's sitting in the middle finger? <laughs> Don't know. This one? Yeah. Beg your pardon.
We're about to talk to Dr. Steve Salisbury from the University of Queensland, who's been working with a diverse team of researchers, including those from the CSIRO, on a West Australian coastline of dinosaur tracks known as the Dinosaur Coast. So you work on the Dinosaur Coast. Could you tell us a bit uh, where it is, firstly, and what why it's a uh, unique dinosaur trackway? So the, um, the Dinosaur Coast is on the Dampier Peninsula in the West Kimberley region of Western Australia. Um, the closest town is Broome, oh. and there's about 100 kilometres of coastline along the Dampier Peninsula um, where the Broome sandstone is exposed, and the Broome sandstone is about um, between 140 and 127 million years old, and where it's exposed... Um, we have tracks of dinosaurs, lots and lots of dinosaurs. There are thousands of tracks and at least 21 different types of dinosaurs represented. It's pretty amazing. Men, oh men. Um, what, what type of ecosystem was it at this time when these tracks were made? And was it in a similar time period or spread out over some time? Um, so as best as we've been able to work out, looking at the rocks in the area, um, back then, and probably best to just say about 130 million years ago, uh, the area was part of a big delta system that flowed from the north to the south. Um, so the area around Womadon, or James Price Point, where we um, did a lot of our research and has been the focus of the, the recent paper that came out, um, that would have probably been between 5 and 10 kilometres inland from the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was probably part of a, a vast river plain. Um, might have been a couple of kilometres across, lots of sandbars and abandoned channels, and either side of that river system were fern and cycad-dominated forests with also aracarian pine trees and things, and we, we found the remains of those plants in some of the rocks. Um, and it looks like... Sort of periodically, might have been seasonal, might have just been sort of freak events. Um, the area was flooded, and when the floodwaters receded, um, it left a layer of probably about 10 centimetres thick of sort of silty sand. Mm-hmm. And as that has started to dry, um, dinosaurs have come out and walked all over it, and their tracks have been preserved. And it looks like in the Womadon area, at least, the majority of tracks are in a single horizon. So they're all probably formed, you know, within a, you know, a few days or a week or so um, because that's probably about the amount of time that the surface would have been amenable to, to tracks being made on it. And in areas where those tracks and the surfaces hardened sufficiently but not too hard that it started to crack up, um, and importantly where that surface has been reburied by more sand, um, that's where we find the tracks preserved now as the, as the wave action is starting to erode the coast away. We Could see them emerging on reefs and, and rock platforms all the way along that coastline. Without going back 130 million years ago necessarily, would you be able to give us um, a little history into this particular discovery? Yeah, well, the, um, the tracks in this area have been known for a very long time. This is not news at all, really. Um, probably they've been known for, for thousands of years because they form part of a song cycle for the Indigenous people of the Kimberley. So a lot of their creation mythology incorporates um, dinosaur tracks, um, but the 
stories that involve the dinosaur tracks um, relate to a creation being called Morella, the emu man, and wherever mm-hmm. he went, he left behind these giant three-toed tracks that you know essentially look like tracks of a giant emu. Um, we recognise these tracks today as those of a meat-eating dinosaur, and they were named Megalosaurus brubensis back in 1967. And it wasn't until the sort of late 80s that um, more sort of insights into the dinosaur tracks of the, of the Dampier Coast came about, and that was through the efforts of um, a keen sort of local naturalist named Paul Folks, who was the first person to recognise sauropod tracks in this area, so something different to these three-toed tracks that had been assigned to Megalosaurus. And it wasn't until... Um, 2008 when the threat of industrial development loomed over Womerton, um, you know, in the, in the shape of a $45 billion LNG processing precinct that oh the decision was made to sort of try and, and go a bit more public with what was there and that was when we um, were called in, um, first went there in 2011 to start to properly document the tracks in this area um, and, and bring them to the public's attention and that's that's what we've been able to do with this paper and you know we kind of didn't realise when we first started going up there just how many tracks we were going to have to deal with um, it's part of the reason it took us sort of six years to get the study completed. What was the process like for collaborating with so many different groups of people? You mentioned the Indigenous community were really involved, um, but there was also CSIRO Tech and um, I understand universities as well. Um, was that an interesting process? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This study has involved the efforts of lots of people. Um, yeah. To start with, we've had to sort of just you know, gain the trust of the lawmen involved who care for this this coastline and the dinosaur tracks and so initially spent a lot of time literally tracking dinosaurs out on these reef systems um, which was you know really really enjoyable and it was great to sort of share our insights um, with with Galarabaloo and their lawmen and also learn about how they knew about these tracks as well Um, and as as we did that and started to realize just how extensive um, the exposures of tracks were we realized that Mapping them wasn't easy. It wasn't going to be easy. You know, they're underwater half the time. They're all in the intertidal zone, and tides in the Kimberley are huge. You know, ten meters up to ten meters every day. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the areas where we started to find tracks are only accessible for you know a few hours for a few days every year when the when big spring tides come through. So we had to sort of time all our research trips to coincide with big spring tides um, they will give us the, the greatest opportunity to get to a lot of areas and also give us a bit more of a window to work in certain spots and then because <clears throat> we couldn't um, you know just sort of lay out tape measures and casually sort of go about our work because we had to you know do it quickly we ended up we teamed up with CSIRO um, with Robert Slot and Michael Boza, um, two guys who invented Zebedee, which is a handheld laser scanner, um, and then also George Poropat, um, who had done a lot of photogrammetry. So we used the laser scanning and then photogrammetry, which we did on the ground, um, and also from drones, 
and then with a uh, light aircraft that was flown by Jorg Harker from Airborne Research Australia at Flinders University. Mm. Um, we use that sort of integrated array of approaches and techniques to digitally map the coastline so that we would have a, a 3D digital record of all these surfaces and the tracks. And that meant that, you know, we could do, could cover a lot of ground relatively quickly um, and then also analyse all the maps and, and, and tracks um, away from the site and in the comfort of our lab and not have to worry about getting washed away and deal with sharks and crocodiles and stuff all the time. No one wants to deal with it all the time. Can you tell us uh, what footprints can tell us that the fossils themselves cannot? Well, the thing that, that footprints sort of tell you, and this is what makes them, I think, so exciting, is like that's where a dinosaur walked. You know, it's not like, um, you know, you're just looking at what's left of it after the remains have sort of, you know, decayed on the side of a river and then washed 20 kilometres down to get buried somewhere. This is where the dinosaur was when it was alive. Um, we can So we can see, you know, where it was, what it was doing, and then how it was moving and interacting with other dinosaurs. So we can work out, you know, um, aspects of the locomotion of dinosaurs, um, how fast they were moving and, and actually how they walked. Um, and then, you know, depending on, on what sort of site you've got, if there are multiple tracks um, and trackways, you, you might be able to start to infer, for instance, whether... You know, groups of dinosaurs were moving across the landscape at the same time, whether they were in herds, um, you know, if, if there are interactions between carnivores and herbivores, all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's all there written in the rock. We've just got to sort of carefully try and work out how to interpret it and read it. What a job that is. I understand you also found the world's largest footprint. Um, do you have any idea what that was doing there and what they might have been doing? I mean, it, it was there because it was left behind by an enormous dinosaur. And, um, <laughs> Weird. We, I mean, we didn't at first recognise some of those giant tracks as tracks because they were sort of beyond our search image. Um, but as we started to map the area and, and get a look at it from above using the, the digital maps that we created and, and also just start to get a handle on the different types of tracks that are there because, you know, not... Not all dinosaurs have, have classic sort of three toes with some claws on them. Like sauropods, their tracks are sort of often just large oval-shaped depressions um, and the feet are sort of three or four times the size of the hands. Um, so recognising um, what the different types of tracks were, we, we started to, to sort of see that some of these huge, big, essentially rock pools that we'd been walking over every now and then were actually tracks. Um, they're the same shape as, as smaller ones and a number of them line up. So, for instance, that one that everyone would have seen a photo of where we've got Richard Hunter, one of the, the lawmen, lying alongside it and what sort of 1.7 to 1.75 metre long track. Immediately behind it is a handprint and it looks like there's part of another track alongside it. So, you know, when you start to have things like that happen where you get depressions where you know, the shape is consistent with what you'd expect for, for the foot of a dinosaur, where you can see the sort of the mud and sand squished up around the edges and you can sometimes see the impression of like a heel area and toes and things. And when that sort of starts to happen again and again and 
things line up, you know, we had to sort of begin to accept that these were just giant dinosaur tracks. And, you know, sort of at first, we, you know, we were a bit apprehensive about it just because they are so enormous. But dinosaurs did get that big. We've got <laughs> skeletons or partial skeletons of, of sauropod dinosaurs from South America that are in that size range. Um, it's just that we've never seen tracks made by dinosaurs of that size and we've never seen any evidence of them in Australia so it's pretty exciting to recognise those tracks and you know if, if there was only one I would have been a bit bit more cautious about it but after we've you know found a number um, in that science range we, we're fairly confident that, that they are indeed tracks. That track that 1.7 metre long one extrapolating up how big an animal would have left it? So what we can do is look at the spacing of the tracks, so the distance between consecutive left and right hand and, and foot tracks um, to work out like the length of the torso. Mm-hmm. So that's one option we can use um, to figure out the height of the hip. And then we can also um, extrapolate from the proportions of, of similar dinosaurs to figure out, you know, we know their foot was this long and, and then from there we can work out the height of the leg and the hip. So for, for those animals, a conservative, like seriously, a conservative estimate is about five and a half metres at the hips. Oh, man. Um, so it's like big enough to step over a bus. It's huge. Um, you know, how, exactly how long they were is, you know, that's a bit harder to, to be sure about because obviously we're just talking about what we can figure out from the tracks. And sauropods, the, the, the length of the neck and the tail can vary quite a bit. So, you know, you could... Could be looking at an animal that's 25 metres long. You could be looking at an animal that's 35 or 40 metres long. We, we're not really sure, but we can be fairly sure about the height of the hip, and that puts it in the realm of probably some of the biggest dinosaurs that's ever existed, that have ever existed. Yeah, biggest uh, animals in the land. Yeah, man, and to think that they were, you know, walking around in the Kimberley 130 million years ago, it's pretty special. It's almost too much to comprehend, too much exciting stuff. Yeah, no, it's been good. I mean, we've we've had to contain our excitement for about <laughs> six years, but it's good to finally let it go now. <laughs> I can out. imagine. Now the whole world is excited for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for the great chat. We learned a lot. We've got a lot to chat about afterwards. Little did you know you stumbled into a dinosaur fan club. No, that's okay. I know oh, there's, there's a lot of people that are interested in this, so it's good. Yeah, it's really great. 40 metres was his 40, not so yeah. conservative Huge. estimate of that dinosaur. And it would have been herbivore. Yeah, herbivore. So, they they have the prints of the pteropod ones that he's saying. Uh, what was its name? Megalopsis or something. But, um, Craig. Craig, yeah. <laughs> Gary. 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 <laughs> Snuggling around with his desensitised nose. Um, yeah, what's really a sort of beautiful overlay of understanding is the indigenous communities there had those song lines. Yeah. And mm. they were for an emu. Yeah. Uh, figure and emus are obviously modern day dinosaurs really so they had the exact right idea just um 130 million years out or just different just yeah slightly different yeah so it is yeah it's very sort of poetic very it is poetic yeah it's lovely mm. it's a great um yeah collaboration story and it sounds like it's been a really long time in the making for steve hopefully he can go celebrate mm, yeah have a dinosaur themed party <laughs> but imagine coming across something that's 40 meters long Huge. Hopefully they find another one. It'd be good to find another track of that guy so they can see where he went. Yeah. Maccas. Drive <laughs> through. Walk through. <laughs> <laughs>
Now Steph is going to talk about the Martian atmosphere or the lack thereof. Ooh. What's little more than half the size of Earth and was moist and wet and supported life 3.5 billion years ago? <laughs> Your yeah, mum! Yeah! <laughs> yes. Actually, it was a little planet called Mars, the red planet. <laughs> God, boys are so predictable. Uh, that was just my own experiment. We're new ones. According to new research from NASA, solar wind and radiation stripped the red planet of its thick atmosphere that it used to have. Hang on, so the real answer was Mars? Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) We got there. Um, So unfortunately, without a nice blanket of atmosphere, the planet cooled and the liquid liquid water lost its ability to exist leading to the barren, desolate... Did it evaporate or freeze? What happened to it? Well, we're getting there. Okay. (laughs) What it comes down to is how the atmosphere got beaten out into space. It's a sad story. Wafted away. Yeah. So the surface these days looks pretty cold and desolate if you've seen the photos um, from, (laughs) you know, various roving space gear. Holiday videos. Yeah. Yeah. We know that from observations, all signs pointed to Mars being warm and wet in the past. The evidence of that is that there were valleys and riverbeds pointing to precipitation runoff, possibly, as you mentioned, water freezing, expanding, um, water erosion. Um, And there are also some minerals that we uh, found that only form in the presence of water. Um, But what we now know from a recent paper published in Science, uh, thanks to NASA's MAVEN, Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission spacecraft. That's a cool uh, acronym, isn't it? MAVEN. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, I was going to say something from the underworld. Yeah, that too. Mm, Had to be banished to space. Um, It seems as though the gas present that was present in Mars' atmosphere was literally lost. Um, roughly 65% of argon gas. Adrian, something you want yes. to say? Yes, question. Where did it go? How, how, did the, <laughs> how did the atmosphere stop being? Well, it's this thing called solar winds from the sun. Oh. Um, it's a thin stream of gas. It blows from the surface and it's electrically, e- electrically conductive. Mm. It means these energetic particles actually beat off um, more vulnerable um, atoms from argon gases. Wow. I'm not sure which gas uh, they were looking at on Earth, but in Mars it's argon gas, um, which is an inert gas. It um, It is defined as a noble gas. It means that it is a really low... Um, reactivity? Chem- yeah, chemical reactivity. Basically, you don't need nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it as the Beyonce gas. <laughs> I was thinking that too. <laughs> Strong um, and independent. Yeah, and it means that the only way they can get physically moved because they don't bond is to be physically knocked around. Oh. Um, and it's this process called sputtering. So so the uh, the solar wind literally came in and physically knocked the argon out of the atmosphere into space? Yeah. Um, and Just smacked it. They were able to, once they calculated the amount of argon that was lost that way, they were able to look at the amount of carbon dioxide lost to space too. Um, so in doing so, they realized that it was possible that Mars could have supported life at some point when it had a thick blanket atmosphere. Time to get the tinfoil hat back on. So the carbon dioxide holds heat, so keeps it warm, which is conducive to bearing life. Mm. And on Earth, at least, carbon dioxide. See, when they say this, though, aren't they referring back to life as we know it here on this planet? How do they know that something else hasn't existed that needed darkness and needed 
dry and didn't water was just the end of that well, source of life. Water is the main building block of life. Yeah, and but that's life as we know. Yeah, mm. and we've but only got one sample, we, which is exactly, on this planet. Exactly. Mm. So, I think the suggestion is if there were life on Mars, it's related to that on Earth. So there's evidence that it could get seeded via impacts on Mars, carry it over here. So there's one idea that life on Earth was seeded from life that cropped up on Mars first. Wow. And why darkness is not so good is light is a form of energy and heat and you need heat to create chemical reactions which is the basis of life but again this is this is as we know no 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 but any chemical reaction regardless of whether it's in a living thing or not is heat is the, the primary but that's chemicals currency. that we know about so the, the, no 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 this oh. is the this is the only thing that's out there i guess they could, now well like in our universe <laughs> okay like in this in this reality that we're in there's some very smart people now just yelling into their <laughs> listening device where they're listening yeah. to us from i think uh, i think light would be a fundamental ingredient to life in this whole universe. The I think thing about Mars now is that it cops the battering of radiation from the sun because it doesn't have this protective atmosphere too, which means you know it would have to be a pretty special form of life to be able to exist on the surface. But aren't you saying that it used to have that protective layer? Well, yeah, it, yeah, it did have that but protective now, layer. And if we were to move there, we'd have to like live underground and have lead bunkers or something. Yeah. So. Geez, that sounds fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Canned food. If there was life on Mars now, it would probably be underground. Um, or if it was on the surface, it would be pretty rare. Probably just go up for a spot of sun. Rare. I reckon you'd be well done. Hey! <laughs> In <Terranauts. laughs> And cut. Well, that's it. Another episode of Interranauts, episode number five. We've got a tentative run of six episodes, so make sure to tune in for the next one. It, might it could be it. Could be it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> tell, remember to if you want, If you want more episodes, yeah, tell your friends, get them listening. Subscribe on iTunes. That's what we're looking for, people. Give us a rating. Yes, anyway, well, thanks for listening. We had a great time. Give us a good rating, too, hopefully. Yeah. Mm, What's in your no. no, you just said give us a rating. Okay. Yeah, five would be good. Five out of five is optimal. But, you know, if you feel like we could do something better, let us know. And uh, don't give us a rating. Don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, have a great rest of your day and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye.